Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good day, good morning, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and this is episode number 92 of the EdTech Situation Room for Wednesday, April 25th, 2018. And joining me as always, or I should say I'm joining him as always since I'm returning from a brief hiatus, is Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you? Good evening. I am... I'm well, and I am thrilled to have you back. So it's been thank you uh, a good break, I hope, because I've been seeing Facebook posts with um, pictures of near completed and maybe well, full drafts. And anyway, good good for you writing the dissertation. And I hope that uh, Montana's been getting some rain and not wildfires. We've you know we've had had some excitement. Spring is still not quite fully sprung here, and I'm sure it's not further. For the north, so a good night. That, that is true. Montana is experiencing. Actually, we've had a really late uh, couple of dumps of snow here, and then some you know, weird drops in temperatures. But um, in Missoula today, it was it was seventy one degrees, which is a good April temperature. And on Friday, we're supposed to hit eighty for the first time. So we're looking forward to that. And then to give a brief update, um, I have finished uh, for all practical purposes my dissertation and. I had my the person on my committee that's in charge of stats had an opportunity to go through there today and signed off on my statistical testing. And so I will turn it into my committee on this coming Monday in anticipation of defense on May 8th. So I, um, I'm looking forward to being through this process. Congratulations. So it's, been, oh. it's been super wonderful, and I'm feeling very good about, about things now. Like a lot of it, and I'm sure this was experience with you too, Wes, is that a lot of this is kind of running up your head against things you just don't think about in a certain way. And so I had to, you know, kind of expand my mind a little bit to try to pick up, you know, some, some pieces that were missing. But um, I'm feeling pretty good about it, and I'm really looking forward to sitting in front of my committee and defending. Fantastic. That's right. Because the best dissertation is the completed dissertation. And if it has significance, then that's just all gravy. But, you know, the meat and potatoes are done. And that is that is great. So absolutely plan a, a good celebration meal. Not sure when that will be, but we need to start making plans for a large steak to be to be shared. <laughs> yes, that would be awesome. So. Well, um, I've been gone for a while, and there's been a lot of really interesting tech news, so I might stumble into some things tonight that, that have been talked about in some detail in, in, in previous episodes. But if you don't mind, Wes, I'd like to start tonight because there's a piece of older news that I haven't had the opportunity to talk about that impacts my, my day-to-day job. And by the way, I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana. And um, there is a piece of news that is from uh, a number of weeks ago Ago, but um, the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance and the Quality Matters organization have announced that we will be taking over the uh, uh, virtual learning um, uh, course, teacher, and program standards from iNACAL. And iNACAL is the um, International Council of of online learning. It's the K-12 advocacy organization in the United States for distance learning um, opportunities for students. And they have previously uh, published a couple of sets of standards 
um, that were starting to become a little long in the tooth. And the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance, which is a 14-state alliance of state virtual schools, including my program, the Montana Digital Academy, and Quality Matters, which is a both K-12 and higher ed organization that works on uh, uh, setting standards for quality courses, are joining together to revise and re-release those standards. And this is really exciting work for me because it's likely that I'll be involved in some way and shape or form in this process. But um, I've really come to appreciate uh, especially uh, standards that are nationally produced that aren't intended to be like a state standard where, you know, programs are, are held to something like a state standard in, in curriculum might be, but rather things that can be aspirational that can help set high bars to make learning better. And so um, more details as the process goes along. And I'm sure that that uh, when I start becoming involved in the collection of data and the revision, I'll report back pieces here. But very exciting work going on. Um, in, in virtual learning in the United States. And um, I guess sort of speaking for the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance, we really value our partnership with Quality Matters, of which Montana Digital Academy and the rest of the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance membership schools are members of the Quality Matters Alliance. So we're really excited about this work and hope to have some news soon about uh, release dates of, of those standards as they will be in a staggered calendar over the next couple of years. That is fantastic. Well, I'm so encouraged by all the work that you do uh, with online education. One of the ironies here in Oklahoma has been that a lot of the push for online education has come from uh, private companies and uh, charter schools, and which uh, are typically very antagonistic towards public schools and seen as, as a net loss, you know, in terms of, of public dollars. And so uh, I would certainly love to see that dynamic change um, at our school. You know, we don't have any kind of requirement for online classes. Of course, I'm at a private school now, but <clears throat> it is something that we're seeing peer schools do. And my daughter, uh, who is a senior, has now um, taken online courses from two different institutions. She did two concurrent classes in the fall from the University of Central Oklahoma, and then she's been doing concurrent with our local community college, OCCC, and um, she's and she, she she's done both a face to face and an online each time, and so it certainly emphasized for me uh, just the real dice roll that it can be sometimes in terms of what you're going to get. Uh, you really in in these cases didn't have very good representation in the course catalog or anything. I mean, in one case we turned to pick a prof, which turned out to be <laughs> useless, and one one was kind of a negative experience. And anyway, it's just it's so important for us to to uh, look at standards and look at the ways in which um, you know courses are. Are, are not only delivered and shared, but the way they're also communicated to students and then the ways we're all preparing and everything. So I'm, I'm excited to hear that. We'll look forward to continued updates from you because it does seem that Montana, you know, you're in your what third or fourth iteration as an online, um, a school. You, um, we're the, we're the second statewide program. Um, uh, but you guys that, rebooted a few times, didn't you in Montana as far as right. Like, that, that's model, correct. Right? Is it like right. the third, re third reboot of the model? Yeah, the one the, my our current organization is the third reboot, and then there have been 
attempts, uh, several times actually, to try to come up with coalitions to do that. And one of, one of the magic things in Montana is that we discovered that a lot of people want to make online learning about cost savings and make that the headline. But the bottom line is, is that while you can definitely create some economy of scale to serve unique programs across many schools, we have 200 plus schools in any given semester that work with the Digital Academy. Part of that is not because it's cost savings, it's because it's a, it's an efficient way to give access to students in rural schools. And now I think about it, the other interesting thing that's happened in the time since I've been gone is that um, a couple of, of organizations have released a rural education report regarding distance learning education opportunities. And MTDA was one of the programs they highlighted and also worked with to try to build some, some kind of notions of, of why this format of learning is really critical for, for very rural schools. And we're, we take that mission very seriously in Montana. And something that people don't understand, um, especially those that are kind of east of the Mississippi River, is that, um, you know, when we say rural in Montana, it looks a little different than what rural schools are labeled in, in coastal states. Um, you know, there are suburbs to large cities that oftentimes qualify for federal rural dollars because the rules um, are really just about population, where in Montana, um, you know, we, we, we have some of the most remote areas in the United States that have population, and that, that includes Alaska. Um, Montana has the, uh, like four of the top 10 of very remote small towns. We have like six of the top 15 of, uh, remote, medium-sized towns, because we certainly have cities in, 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 uh, Montana that, you know, are, are 25, 30, 50,000, but they're also really far away from any other population center. And so it always surprises people when I say things like, you know, I'm in Missoula. If I head west and drive roughly eight hours, I end up in Seattle. If I end, if I go east from Montana and drive for eight hours, I'm not even to the end of the state. So it's a, it's a big chunk of, 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 of land with relatively few people and you get outside the population areas, of which there are about seven that, that have a, a joint population of, of 50k or more. And it gets pretty remote, you know, um, there are towns in northeastern Montana where your nearest larger stores are in Canada. So, you know, crossing the border regularly to engage in that commerce is just part of the process there. So we really take our mission as a rural access organization very seriously and work hard to try to develop interesting solutions around that notion. Absolutely. All right. Well, we've got, we have a ton of articles. Um, we do. And there's a whole lot of exciting Google news, but I want to start with a weird one. This was from today. I, I saw this on Twitter and then I'm regularly listening to my Google home and I have seen uh, it. What is it? I have CNET headlines and then there's tech, tech news, some, some things that, you know, kind of compress. And this one, uh, this one made it. This is uh, Los Angeles Times today, which is actually, I guess, from the Washington Post. So it's a, a cross post. Electronics recycling innovator faces prison for trying to extend computers lives. And this is a story of a fellow named Eric Lundgren. And he's been an incredible recycler, finding all kinds of ways to process and recycle e-waste in the United States. And he's worked for large corporations, IBM, Motorola, Sprint. But unfortunately, uh, copyright law has run afoul of him. <clears throat> and when you purchase a uh, Windows computer licensed with the Microsoft operating system, um, and I think this was from Dell, you have the free opportunity to download restore disks. And if you have that, you know, license code, uh, you can just legitimately download that, burn that disk, 
Um, you know, and, and if that computer, of course, it's not recommended. Anybody run anything? Windows XP and older. Those are not supposed to be supported operating systems. But in the in the uh, spirit of recycling and, you know, not just buying something new because there's, you know, new stuff and companies want you to. Um, he worked with uh, some Chi- a Chinese company to basically create these and try to sell them for 25 cents a piece. And even though they were never sold, they were seized by customs agents and he was found guilty and fined uh, tens of thousands of dollars. And actually, um, I, it looked like the prison time or, you know, may have been waived. Um, but, uh, yeah, his 28,000 restore discs, they said had a value of $700,000. And so he was given a 15 month term and a $50,000 fine. And then that has been appealed. So anyway, kind of crazy. Um, but you know, it's interesting thinking about, uh, how long devices last when we've got to refresh them. Um, you know, e-waste and, and recycling, stewardship of the planet. There's a whole lot of, of intersections there. So Jason, have you had any personal experiences dealing with restore disks from, from Dell machines? And I know you've used Chromium or other kinds of tools to resuscitate computers. So did this uh, article strike you as a surprise? It did, and I read a different version of this um, uh, this afternoon. And part of what's really interesting to this to me is that you know the guy was downloading software you can download from the internet without payment or firewall or or password wall, and simply burning it to disk for the convenience of of, of those that were p- picking up uh, these elements. And um, you know, I I think it, what seems strange to me is that it's it seems like a kind of a tone deaf move on the part of Microsoft. Um, because, you know, like the, he's not really distributing, you know, licenses, which is what, you know, the, this article does a really good job of highlighting that it's licenses that are the, the what Microsoft sells. They don't sell, you know, discs. They sell licenses. It's the reason why, um, you know, there probably are millions of copies of, of Windows sitting in homes that, that people could easily give away or, or toss away. And it's not worth anything unless you have a license key that can be activated by an activation server. And so where it really stuck with me is that, um, something that's been really great about the Windows 10 era is that um, you can go and download a copy of Windows 10 from Microsoft.com and burn it to a disk or put it on a, a flash drive. And as long as you have either the serial number of Windows 7 or Windows 8 um, on a computer, and they're usually on stickers or in some cases with newer computers, they're kind of hard-coded into the BIOS, you can just install Windows 10 without buying a, a copy of it yourself and uh, because it's technically my Microsoft uh, processes already licensed, so you're good to go. And so I, I, I'm almost certain that the, uh, the emergency stay um, on the sentence, which is going to give him, uh, the, the gentleman, an opportunity to appeal, is probably going to be, um, you know, uh, an opportunity for him to explain this as the misunderstanding that it is. But in my mind, it's just, it's just really tone deaf. I think the e-waste issue is a big deal in the United States, and um, you know, it's probably a little better in the era of laptops because they're physically smaller, right? So we're not sticking so much um, e-waste in, in landfills. But if computers can be reused, uh, we should do that. And that's where a lot of schools are really, um, you know, at the forefront of that process. All right. Well, why don't we talk some Google news? And, and first, uh, we were talking before the show, uh, kind of at length, actually, about how you are just becoming the Chromebook uh, wielder. So uh, 16 gigs of RAM does not go to waste on the Chromebook. Is that what I understand? That's correct. Um, so I've been, I've, 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 I, last year, I purchased kind of uh, what, what seemed like uh, something that fell off the back of uh, 
back of a truck deal on on Amazon for a, a pretty nice um, advanced Chromebook um, that has 16 gigs of RAM and it's in uh, the M7 chip, so it's the mobile uh, i7 processor, and it's it's a USB-C uh, a powered and uh, peripheral uh, a Chromebook, and it's 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 a very 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 nice piece of hardware. And um, two things have happened that have really changed my engagement with that, and actually maybe three things. First, I think I've mentioned this in the past, but 100% of my dissertation work has been on Google Google Docs, and it's something I plan on writing about because I think that story needs to get told that you know Google Docs is is enterprise enough it is advanced enough to you know allow me to really work on a paper for 3 years and that's something that um, I think is 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 the headline of that is that what that's allowed me to do is that you know when I West as you know I go in and out of different computers all the time I like to set up olders and newer ones and go back and forth and back and forth but what's been great is that every time I log into Chrome with my personal Gmail account um, and sync that to that new browser then there's always a button in my toolbar that takes me directly to my dissertation and wherever at I'm on earth I am I'm able to do that and that power has really stuck with me in the dissertation process. But you add two other things to that. The first one is that um, I picked up on eBay a couple of weeks ago a cheap USB-C dock. It's a uh, the retail. It's, it's a relatively expensive piece of hardware, but a, a computer recycler in Seattle was selling a bunch of. I'm assuming they were corporate castoffs. Uh, I did some research on this particular model of dock, and it doesn't work as consistently across USB-C devices. And so I'm pretty sure a company bought them, and it didn't work for their corporate laptops. And so a recycler came in and dealt with that. But but um, I'm able, it, it's a three monitor dock. And so with one cable, one USB-C cable. Um, and so when I'm talking about one USC, uh, USCB, US, USB-C. <laughs> thank you. With one cable that looks, this is not the cable, but it looks like this, right? It's, it's just one simple cable that comes out of that dock. Um, I'm able to serve power through to charge the laptop, and at the same time, it powers three monitors, a, a hardwired network connection, and three USB peripherals, um, including a mouse and a keyboard. And then I also have at work a um, a uh, uh, what's called a DAC, a digital audio converter that's got headphones in it, so that I can listen to um, kind of uh, loud, clear music as I'm working during the day. And um, through one cable, be able to do that. And so that's been a big evolution for me. Plus, I finally have um, Android apps working um, on my work uh, Google Suite for Education account, which took some doing because none of the Chromebooks that I use are managed Chromebooks. They're personally owned Chromebooks, of which we don't own management licenses. It took a couple of extra steps to get Android ste uh, apps working there. But I'm shocked and amazed about how wonderful it's been to have access to, um, you know, really high-end um, uh, experiences now that especially since I can pull in those Android apps and through the dissertation process and then also the daily work, I, I just, I don't need anything more than that. And, um, you know, I, part of that is that, you know, there's just so many great web tools. That's obviously part of it, but having the Android apps really fills in any gap for me. So, um, you know, I, I understand that some folks don't like the, the perceived limitations of the Chromebook piece, but I feel like I'm a power user and I just don't need anything else. 
That is great. That is great. Well, I'm anticipating hopefully a, a refresh of some of our Chromebook cards, maybe some new ones, and there's even other discussions about exciting things that I won't uh, forecast, but we're looking at the Lenovo 300e, which is the touchscreen convertible that uses a regular number two pencil as the stylus. Pretty excited. I, I, uh, I'm excited to get hands-on with that and um, you know, then to potentially see what that would do with, uh, you know, teachers flipping classes and doing yep. math and English and all kinds of things. So let's talk some of the Gmail updates. Uh, Google has announced some exciting updates for today and I'm pretty, pretty enthused, especially about some of the security features. So, um, I think you had dropped the PC magazine, um, article about the, G- the features. You want to, want to speak to those a little bit? Sure. So let me start there that, um, one of the things that I find to be um, uh, really nice is that the, the new Gmail features that dropped today. First, it looks beautiful. And if you have a personal Gmail account, you can right now kind of opt into the uh, the new systems. It's just a little button in the little gear icon in the upper right-hand corner um, of uh, that kind of the desktop browser experience will take you to the new version. And it's got that wonderful flat uh, material design that Google is now famous for in Android. And it looks spectacular. It looks very modern. Um, and I would assume that over time, and I, I haven't looked to see if you could still theme the Gmail screen, but I'm presuming that they'll have nice flat themes available so you can kind of personalize it to your taste. Um, but those very visual uh, updates are kind of covering or maybe burying some of the really great new features of, of the, the, uh, of Gmail itself. First, there is a, um, really interesting mode that's called confidential mode where you can send or identify emails as, um, kind of giving you more control about how and if they're read. And so the way the PC magazine describes uh, today is that it, they call it granular control over who can see information in email and what they can do with it. So confidential mode can allow you to do things like uh, expire an email. So if you send an email to someone, you only want that legitimate for 48 hours. After 48 hours, if the end user doesn't read it, it just goes away. In Gmail only, though, I'm assuming. You I'm assuming it is, too, yeah. right? And I haven't tested that yet, but I'm presuming that's the case. And I also believe um, that if you read it, you could also kind of have it disappear, too, kind of almost Snapchat style. Um, I need to look more and to experiment with that. Um, you can also um, be able to limit things like the ability to forward an email to someone else as well. And the reason why I think this is really interesting in context of schools is that there's still plenty of people that would tell you never put student data in an email because, um, you know, they're not encrypted. Now, you know, if you're going, you know, Gmail to Gmail, they are encrypted because internally, uh, if you send from, you know, Google accounts to Google accounts, they, they keep it encrypted. But I really like this notion that Google's experimenting with kind of the email model to find out if there are ways we can add more kind of you know, nuanced or enhanced ways to, to, to boost security, um, with those particular pieces. Um, it also, um, you know, uh, attempts to, and I, I don't know enough about it yet, and to be honest, I, I, I tried reading some of the, the, the details of this, and it, it wasn't really uh, clear to me what it would look like, but apparently it can compel things like, you know, forcing someone to re-log in uh, with their account, and of course, if they have two-factor authentication turned on, then, um, you know, confirm that it's them before they're allowed to open an email. It's considered a secure channel, and if that's the way that works, that's a really big advancement in, in email. 
Um, so that's that's one of the headline features. Um, some of the uh, more nuanced ones, uh, you can go to an email now, and I turn this on to my personal email t- uh, today and play with it a little bit tonight. Um, there's lots more options available to you now um, on individual emails, including in the inbox itself. You can hover over an email and put it in the trash or archive it really quickly, which is what a wonderful way to be able to manage down to inbox zero. Um, you can also mark it as read by that hover gesture. And then a really cool feature is you can snooze an email. So if an email comes to you and you're not quite ready to deal with it yet, which to be frank, um, in my job, which, you know, almost 90% of the communication I do is an email, um, that's, that snooze piece is, is something that, that I, I use uh, another tool for that. It's called Boomerang for Gmail. Um, this, uh, subsumes that and, and puts this into core Gmail, but allows essentially for you to say, I want this email to disappear for three hours. Like, I don't want to deal with this right now. Boomerang, though, lets you also send something in the, into the future. That's correct. That yeah, feature, it's more functional than that. Yeah. yeah. That feature, I don't think, is part of these upgrades. It's not. And, and for me, I will continue to pay for Boomerang, which I do for my work account, for the other feature that I can have something Boomerang back to me if I don't get a reply. And that's that's a feature that I think the uh, Google would be wise to you know kind of create in in the email system, but I like this notion of giving more tools to kind of manage email. I still think one of the reasons why email is so terrible is that unless you are super active and proactive about you know managing email, it becomes a big mess of doom pretty quickly. But giving you these nuanced tools where you can go through and process your email quickly and efficiently. It's really killer, I think. And if you are someone that has to spend a lot of time in your email like I do, um, that's, uh, I think that's a, a, a pretty great thing. Absolutely. I'm excited to see the security features. I read that they are highlighting the phishing emails to make that really more noticeable. Um, we've continued to have issues with that at school, um, having folks creating false uh, Gmail accounts and um, and tricking some of our more savvy users. And yes. one of the things that you know I've debated as a tech director and probably others are as well is whether to pay some companies to come in and test your faculty. And yes, we decided not to do that because basically what you're going to find is that people will be tricked. And you know we are. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think public shaming and, and calling, I mean, you wouldn't call people out by name, but I've, I know of other schools that have, you know, put up graphs to kind of show, you know, what levels of teachers, you know, were opening and things like that. But just the fact that we've had some of our most savvy or what I would consider some of our most savvy users, um, you know, fall prey to some of these, um, they haven't, you know, clicked things to authenticate, but, but, it's in some cases they've engaged with some people um, who were, were pretending uh, to be high level administrators at, and were not. And so, you know, checking that email address, that, right. There's all kinds of ways for, for this stuff to uh, happen. And so I'm glad for Google to be uh, featuring that. And I will mention as well uh, in the article that you put in about how you can do this now uh, for G suite, your G suite admin will need to authorize that in the admin panel. So I'm going to go ahead and do that tonight for our users and, and send this out. And I've been using a variety of different apps to try and, you know, streamline and make things faster. I guess hop H O P is the one I've been using on the iPad most recently. Um, sometimes with the snooze features and just trying to, to get that workflow uh, faster as far as processing it. So I'm glad to see that. And definitely the security features um, can help 
And I would also just uh, point out to everybody that the report as phishing is a really important menu choice whenever you receive a message that you're suspicious about and think, uh, this isn't legit. Um, in the drop down, when you click on the, the hamburger or whatever you call the three dots, uh, you know, on top of each other, you've got report spam and you've got report phishing. And so we've really encouraged folks in our, in our school to utilize that because the more people even inside your organization uh, report that, it is supposed to then take it out of the inbox for others because it will be flagged right. and identified. And so anyway, that's another thing to keep in mind. If you've got savvy, you know, users that are identifying phishing and you're trying to test the whole, you know, faculty and staff, you know, you get, you get folks doing what they're supposed to do and they recognize that and saying, Hey, that's phishing. Then, you know, a lot of folks may not ever see that message because Google is going to is going to file it away. I'll also note that the features are different depending upon what you're using. A lot of our folks are still using default Apple Mail, and so that's not giving you all of those choices. So right. I think it's a good idea to encourage people to use the actual Gmail application on their iPhone or their um, their Android device, and then they'll have better access to those kinds of specialized reporting tools, which otherwise they're going to have to go to their desktop browser um, and and utilize it there. Right. And then there's a couple of out how wonderful this which I don't know if it's the official title or not, but, you know, I, to be too frank, I, I like the whole notion. But nudging is this notion that uh, uh, Gmail will attempt to use kind of smart AI to determine emails that need your attention, but you've ignored for a couple of days. And if that's really true, hallelujah, right? Like, that's pretty sweet. But it also, you know, if you're constantly deleting emails that come from a vendor, for example, it might suggest to you that you should unsubscribe from those emails. And if that's something that's going to evolve over time, especially if they're going to use artificial intelligence to kind of ramp up what that could do, this could really revolutionize email in the same way that, that I think Gmail revolutionized email when it, it rolled out in, in 2003, 2004. And, um, you know, it, it seems like these are kind of long due features, but, you know, if the nudging is real, that's pretty sweet. Um, it can also uh, integrate unsubscribe notifications and higher priority emails based on also in, uh, uh, artificial intelligence. And then um, it's also better integrating other Google tools into that, including offering a bar on the right-hand side of the desktop version or the desktop browser version of Gmail where you can integrate things like Google Calendar into it. And then I do have quite a few things to plug into my work version of Gmail, including our, our voiceover um IP system, so we have an internet telephone system in our organization, and we're in the process right now of adopting and rolling out Salesforce for our administrative staff to help track um, uh, uh, relationships with individual schools, and eventually we'd like to do that with parents and students and our help desk, but um, apparently that will plug in uh, directly into that right-hand bar, but this notion that they're going to try to make email um, you know, more put feelers out into more parts of the other tools. That that's really amazing to me. And you know, I I, I in fact I, I taught a lesson this semester in in my uh, EdTech Methods class. I teach with Micah Gustinelli at the University of Montana. And, you know, I, I did a full lesson on managing email and I kind of made a joke that I know this seems like it's less interesting than if, you know, we were talking about, you know, artificial intelligence or virtual reality. But I got to tell you, 
schools run on email. Um, whether you like it or not, you know, schools are very much email creatures. And the more we could use this tool right, there's just so many efficiencies that emails built into the process. So if Google can provide us more to help manage that, hallelujah. Uh, I think I'm going to consider uh, offering, I'm doing a series of Making Media Mondays that are focused on, surprise, surprise, a different show with media products. And, of course, it's a crazy time of year. You know, you try to do something in April or May, and people are like, are you kidding? Um, but I've had a few folks come each time, and I'm look really looking at it as if just one person comes and, you know, yeah. creates a new product and, and does something with students, you know, it's going to be successful. And so, anyway, those are focused on the media making. But I... We do uh, a whole week of uh, called end of days meetings and and all kinds of things. Uh, and then at the beginning of the school year, we have a week too. And I've got some time blocked off. And I, I might, because uh, I've been thinking about Google Drive and whatnot, but focusing on these new, the new aspects of email. And we just can't assume that people are going to natively thrive and swim like fish in the water, you know, with email, the quantity is so high. Um, our organization, you know, when I was at the University of Texas Tech for five or six years, um, you know, they had something called Tech Announce and it was a digest. And so you'd had an opportunity, you know, with different kinds of announcements and things rather than just get them bam, 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 to be able to subscribe to a, a digest version and be able to process it in that way. And, pro and I would suppose, and this you know, varies by organization, but especially with larger organizations where a number of people have access to mailing lists to be able to send groups, that quantity of email can really, really grow. And sometimes you're not even aware of how it's grown. My wife just joined this last year. And so <clears throat> the volume of emails was quite different coming from her previous school to ours. So I think there's a lot of things for us to grapple with. And uh, really thrilled for Google to be applying their formidable skills in coding and AI and all of those good things to try and help us manage email better because I've continued to find myself on a quest on how to, to better manage that. And it's something that, yeah, schools run on it. And it's one of those things that's, that everybody needs to be concerned with, right? Nobody basically gets to say, Hey, I opt out of email. It's uh, a reality right, yeah. that we've all got to deal with. And, these are going to be welcome tools. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, and while we're on the subject, you know, there, there's been great books out for a decade or more now about managing email, and they apply just as much as 2018 is when they were written, you know, in the 2000s. Um, the Inbox Zero Crowd is a really, really, really good method to to think about approaching your email. And And to be honest, the people that I know that manage their email usually get compliments for it, right? Like uh, something we believe in in my institution is because email is so important in communication, you can't let email sit around for three or four days. And so, you know, when when uh, we hear from schools, um, you know, they talk about our responsiveness to communication. And that's not by accident. That's because we work hard every day, you know, as, a, as an organization to say, we've got to keep on top of our email. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I would encourage you, if you're an email hater, that there are ways that you can approach it in a nice, positive way, um, including, you know, doing some of the stuff that I do. Once a month, I go in and I unsubscribe to a bunch of crap in my work email. Like, I get on lists. I know my, my as, as, a, as a purchasing agent for my organization, I end up on all sorts of vendor lists that I don't really want to be on. And even though Gmail does a great job of, of kind of filing that elsewhere, I work really hard to go in and clean out crap that I don't need so that I can focus on the things that I do. 
And I think uh, I just love that Google's taking a more proactive approach here. And if anything, I mean, they've tried to reinvent email over and over and over again. Uh, some of you may remember it's a decade ago now when they introduced Google Wave, which was their attempt to create a kind of collaborative space that's better than email. As it turns out, in 2018, um, you know, we have plenty of collaborative tools that kind of do what Wave did. But I think this is Google acknowledging that email is not going away, especially in a professional context. So let's build as many tools with as much smarts as we have into them to help you manage this in a meaningful way. And I'm glad to see the tasks going in there, and I will certainly give that a try. I've been trying to trying to work with Todoist because it has an integration with Google Home. But, you know, one of the really tough things you got to do is you have to change your routine where you're you're going to wade into that to-do list, and then you're going to manage that, and it becomes part of your workflow. And for me, that's been a challenge. So I like the idea, if they can pull it off, of having something that's integrated with Gmail because I'm already there. And, you know, one of the Inbox Zero tips is to not make your inbox your to-do list, right? You should really be able to clear it out. And then, you know, have another list where you're working. So I'd like to uh, just hit kind of in a speed dating fashion, a few different uh, other Google related articles. Um, uh, I learned that Google Photos has a video editor. I don't know if you knew this, but we took the the trip to D.C. last week for the Atlas conference. Uh, This was Android. It wasn't policy. Android police on April 20th. Google Photos is rolling out a friendlier and more powerful movie editor. And so. Uh, utilize that. It really is, it's not like a full-fledged iMovie and it's, and it's made sort of like the ones that Google Photos and the AI algorithms will make automatically where they'll take your images and put some music, but you've got the ability to uh, fashion those and, and decide how much time you want those to show. And one of the things that's really cool about it is how it lays out your clips in a vertical uh, format. And then you can, you know, decide, start, start and stop. So it was a cool interface. Hadn't seen that before free. Um, we will talk about Flickr probably here in a bit, but I've, you know, for a while now been uploading by default, all of my photos into Google photos. And so I was glad to see that as a, as a feature. Um, and that's available on iOS as well as for Android. Uh, also NextGov on April 13th had a pretty interesting article about Google and the Pentagon, Google pursuing the Pentagon's giant cloud contract quietly fearing an employee revolt. A lot of employees for Google have signed petitions, which I think speaks to the culture of Google and the fact that they can speak out like this. Uh, saying that basically they don't want to use their AI and their 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 coding skills uh, to to literally be weaponized, you know, it, with with the defense uh, department. And there's a huge contract right now that's up for bid. <clears throat> and I was listening to one of my podcasts uh, talking about this, how you know it it seems to be suited really for Amazon and the cloud, but it's like a ten year contract. And it's for the Department of Defense, and it's for a ton of stuff to live in the cloud. And Amazon, I guess, has built already these private tools as far as, as, as the confidentiality and secrecy. And you'd think Google's going to be able to come up, come up with it as well. But it'll be interesting, and I would I would say it, it speaks to the the culture of Google um, for their engineers and, and other employees to be able to speak out in that way. And then the last quick one, uh, this was Mashable on April 22nd. Gmail accounts appear to send out spam and their owners are baffled. Uh, this was very interesting. I hadn't heard about this before. Basically they spoofed the headers of email messages. And so you actually received them, but they immediately went into your sent box. And so you kind of freaked out thinking, 
oh gosh, I didn't send that. Have I been hacked? And they said it wasn't a hack. You weren't compromised because, you know, people with two step and these other things on were like, how, you know, how did this happen? And so it wasn't uh, an actual hack. It was spam that was sent, but the headers were uh, manipulated in such a way that Gmail filed that away and sent mail and caused people to think that, you know, what is this? I didn't send these messages. They actually weren't sent. They were received and filed in the sent box. The last thing I'll add to that is I had someone on Sunday at our church uh, come up to me and said, oh, you've been hacked. I'm like, okay, well, show me what you got. And his email, you know, had a message purportedly from me and it said, West Friar, and then the at was some other domain I'd never heard of before. And probably he has been hacked because, I mean, with two-step and everything else, and I'm, by the way, not throwing down a gauntlet if you're a black hat to say, you know, come and get me. I, I will never do that. Uh, and I hope that's not <laughs> transcribed. You, man. Yeah, you've got awesome skills, man. Don't come get me. But um, anyway, I was, you know, going to be dubious. I, WordPress and other things like that, I continue to to contend with different kinds of of hacks and things like that. But anyway, I think I think in this case, it was was highly likely that he had been compromised and in some way both his his name and mine you know were were connected and so it was a typical not very much information not worded really well and it had my name and anyway it was yet again one of these examples of folks trying to get you to click on something and and trying to you know pose a, as legitimate so right any, any thoughts on any of those articles for you? Yeah, I would say that that uh, we're seeing an, an uptick too in in uh, phishing attacks, and they're getting pretty clever. Um, what uh, I was in a meeting out of the state a couple weeks ago, and um, the our our office admin received an email from purportedly from the boss that said, "Hey, are you in the office this morning?" And then that's all it said. And um, I, it looked like there was a link to click on the bottom, and I can't remember now that I think about it out loud what the what what the trick was there. But she immediately forwarded to me, and I'm I'm the one who usually deals with that in our organization. It was, it looked pretty legit, and it would be a you know something of the boss to to email to say, hey, are you around this morning? You know, if 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 they want to connect, especially since he was at the meeting with me out of state and. Um, you know that uh, th that's clever. It's it's interesting, Wes, to hear you talk about how you decide not to to test your faculty in that way. We're considering doing the opposite. We want to give it a try to see, um, even if we don't end up uh, reporting that back to our faculty. You know, we because we're in a distributed work model and all of our teachers work outside of our organization. We're, we're we are concerned about that um, because you know it's not quite as easy to you know go down to the tech guy down the hallway and ask those questions and. Um, you know, the, the phishing attacks are becoming more clever and, you know, I, I almost harken back to the days and the worst we had to worry about was a Nigerian prince that wanted to give you 20 million pounds. So, um, um, that, uh, is something we're, we're concerned about as well. Have you implemented two-step yet for everybody? We are all administrative staff that has broad student data access. We are now, and then we're when teachers come back in the fall, uh, we'll, all of our summer school teachers will do it this summer because we're we have access to them and we will we'll hear from them daily, so it's easy to roll that out. But then we'll start working on that in the fall. It's uh, it is challenging with a remote organization because. Um, you know, even in, you know, the 15 accounts we've set up so far that, that have bigger administrative access, 
it's not oh like unless you've done some reading in this area it's not particularly intuitive the point of this and um you know and luckily the particularly and this is true about microsoft suite as well but the the google suite has a great you know app you can download um you don't even have to rely on text messaging anymore right. you can just install that app which is the more secure way to do it anyways and it works on smart watches which is super great and there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to make that simple but if our, it's not a worry. Our challenge is, is that if you don't get it and we're asking you to do this, and at some point we do what Google recommends and kind of slowly move to make that mandatory for our adult users, um, you know, we, we want to make it friendly for, for our teachers to do that. Like it's the right thing to do, but also needs to be the sensible thing to do for the end users. So we'll get there. But, um, I love two factor auth. I feel very secure, especially with my personal account that would be actually way, I mean, obviously my work account has a lot of student, uh, uh, stuff related to that. So that's obviously going to be terrible if that gets hacked into. But from a very personal way, there's tons of financial information in everyone's emails accounts, right? And I feel like if someone were actively attempting to hack me, um, I would know that because I'd be getting notifications on my phone that someone's trying to get in. So, um, yeah, very much in the top of RL1 as well. Um, would you mind if I take a couple of these Google articles quickly? Go for it. Um, the one that was most exciting to me today is that, uh, well, actually two. First, Wes mentioned that Google Tasks is going to be a more, like Google's been working on a to-do list for 15 years. It's nothing new. And I think now that Microsoft um, has their to-do app that was used to be Wonderlist that they bought and is integrated to their suite. Which you bumped me out, by the way, because I really like that. Yeah, I did too. And I, the new version's not, it, it doesn't seem to be as, as they took it in a, in a, in a different direction than, than Wonderless was going into. Um, and then Todoist is also our preferred, uh, joint app in my household for, for shopping lists only. And it's okay, not great. Um, but tasks integrated in Gmail is pretty interesting. Um, the other release, uh, this week from Google, they got a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, the new YouTube Kids app, which they kind of keep reinventing over and over again. YouTube Kids is now going to be a service that has cu uh, human curated channels. And as reported previously on this podcast, there were some issues um, earlier in, in the calendar year with YouTube Kids having a lot of not pleasant videos for younger crowds. Both smut is the word I'll use tonight, uh, even though that makes me sound like a 70s radio DJ. Uh, some smut on the, the YouTube kids. And then also inappropriate uh, um, uh, commercial videos that end up wiggling their way into that. And there's two pieces that are interesting there. First, obviously, a human curated list is great. That's, that is that is a, a good direction. But also, parents are going to have more parental control with those apps now so they can choose which playlist that they want their students to have, or students, excuse me, their kids to have access to. And I find that to be, frankly, awesome, right? Like, it's what a great way that if you, especially if they can, you know, go down to individual, um, you know, individual um, videos to say yes or no, or if you could curate a list and only that list is available in the YouTube Kids app, that's really sweet. And I think that that's very empowering for parents that, you know, if you, you, you want to rely on a tablet for quick distraction for kids and don't want them out on open YouTube, of which is a concept I totally understand, that's a powerful way to do that. So uh, I'm good. It's good to hear that, that Google's taken uh, what seemed like, um, uh, a tool that was, uh, you know, inspiring more controversy than, than power. They're kind of going in the right direction on that. 
I'll just add to that that we had another digital citizenship parent university last night. And so, ooh, I think that is the, that's the sixth one that I've led in the last, uh, well, since, since December. So, uh, four for school and two for church. And it's interesting to hear the conversation around YouTube kids and YouTube, uh, definitely stories that people have about, you know, thinking it was safe, thinking it was fine. It's really not a great idea to, uh, you know, just, just hand uh, a young child a tablet and say, Hey, knock yourself out, whatever you want to do. I mean, it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear about the, the, the curation as well. And, um, you know, they, to YouTube's credit, they've done a bunch of things like <clears throat> adding features there where you can remove the search if, if you don't want the kids to be able to search. It's yep. amazing what even very young kids that we might consider preliterate are able to do in yes. being able to search on a device and, and a phone. And we've had several stories parents have told about that. Uh, it's also interesting thinking about, and this is not, I mean, our kids are older, but, you know, sleepovers and what that means today and how some you know, mm-hmm. parents will check, check in the devices at the door, you know, because you can't just bring in the phone. Yes. You can't just bring in the device. Um, and my wife and I actually had a conversation the other day and I don't know what the answer to this is, but you know, at what age do you want kids doing open Google searches? You know, she's teaching third graders. And so yep. they've, uh, you know, this wonderful website archive.org and it's um, a R K I V E. They've done that almost exclusively for their animal research. It's been great. Um, and, and Google has gotten better even within the uh, Google Classroom. Well, no, I guess it's within Book Creator. Anyway, to, to be able to do filtered searches. So th- those things are progressing, but important issues to talk about in the context of digital citizenship, some of which, you know, would impact us in the classroom and other things are going to be, you know, parent-based as far as what you want to have your, your kids doing or yep, not doing. Ab- absolutely so. Uh, well, let's. I don't, I want to talk about Flickr because I want to hear your thoughts on this, Wes. Because I know you are a Flickrite. Is that the official term um, for that? Um, but last week, SmugMug, uh, which is my understanding is I've never used SmugMug, but my understanding is that SmugMug is a um, is is a preferred photo service for professionals. So, despite the kind of silly name. Um, that it is a, a service that uh, uh, professional photographers flock to, but SmugMug has acquired Flickr. And for those of you that are unaware, Flickr was an independent tool for the longest time and was easily the most popular photo story and sharing service available on the Internet. And then it was acquired by Yahoo, and then, of course, Yahoo spent its days in the wilderness. And then now that Yahoo is a Verizon property, um, uh, Yahoo has sold off Flickr to SmugMug. And of course, the question now is, can SmugMug pull Flickr out of its tailspin and make it the thing that it, it, it once was? So, Wes, first and foremost, um, are you still actively using Flickr as a, 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 a consummate iPhone, or actually, I should say now Android photographer? I am. I need to actually upload um, an album from our Washington trip. I tend to do that when there's some kind of an event and, you know, push that up there and, and have an album. 
Um, I'm excited. I'm, I think this is probably a fantastic outcome. We use Smug Mug actually as our official photos for our communication department at our school. So you oh. go to our website, Cassidy.org, and then you'll, you'll see the link right there to, to check out our Smug Mug albums. And I think our communications department has just found it to be, you know, very flexible and robust as far as the controls that it allows and, and how it lets parents get stuff. And so like, you know, that's become our, our, photo gallery. So I think Smug Mug, from what I've read and seen, has done a nice job monetizing, which is the key, right? Because any of these tools that do not find a pathway to profitability <coughs> are, excuse me, are gonna are gonna go, you know, the way of the dinosaur. So I think that bodes really well. I also like what the um I think Smug Mug founder or CEO, whoever's in charge today, is talking about because he's gonna listen to the community and it's exciting to think about, you know, breathing life. I saw that you dropped in um, a recode article, you know, can Flickr be relevant again? I think that's a very loaded headline. I think Flickr has still been hugely relevant. Uh, if you think about Twitter and the ways that, or Facebook and just the ways that there's so much emphasis on how much are you growing and are you adding more millions and, and all of this, you know, Flickr has been a vibrant community, um, especially when you look at the Creative Commons licensing and the role that plays in people being able to repurpose media. I mean, it is just phenomenal, um, the media that is accessible that way. So I think it's a great, uh, chance at, you know, not, not a resurrection, but, you know, some, some iteration and perhaps a little bit of reinvention. And I think it sounds like Flickr's in good hands. And I'm really glad to hear this because we've talked about this on the show before. It, you know, it's almost been the death watch, you know, wondering, you know, if it's going to, going to go bye bye. And there's just so, you know, millions and millions of photos overall. And I have tens of thousands of pictures in there. Um, that I don't want to have to move somewhere else. And so right. even though Google Photos is is stepping in for me in terms of, of backup and all that, um glad glad to see it. Yep. And then, you know, let's let's also be honest that um, you know, I a lot of people blame um uh the downfall of Yahoo on Flickr. And it seems like that it's probably less so that hmm. the community the passionate community is um, is, is going to blame, um, Smug Mug for that because they, they have their own patch community already. But, um, a lot of folks say that, that part of Yahoo's mistake was screwing up Flickr. And hmm. if they had only been able to, um, you know, keep it going in the right direction, um, you know, they, they, they that might have been a flagship service that could have kept, you know, Yahoo, obviously not as a search engine, but for the other services they were offering, yeah. could have kept it more relevant. It's so interesting that that history as far as, you know, human curated, you know, thinking about YouTube kids and mentioning how mm-hmm. we're excited about human curation. I mean, Yahoo was the the human curated search engine with the yep. categories to drill down and and became eclipsed by sheer volume by algorithms and how preferable those are going to be to, you know, having people creating your categories. Um, I'd like to mention a couple Apple articles really quick. Uh, Apple Insider, April 19th. Tim Cook says Apple won't merge Mac and iPad. Um, and I think that is welcome news to those of us that rely on our Macs daily. And I'm still definitely in that camp. Um, but I will say this doesn't rule out running iOS apps in the Mac, right? Yep. And so I, I think we're, we're seeing, well, who is it? 
Gib, uh, William Gibson, the future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. I mean, we see this happening with Chromebooks and convertibles and Microsoft Surface and the way in which touch devices and laptops are, are merging. And I think that whole idea of being able to, you know, take mobile app functionality and, hey, why can't I have that, you know, here on, on this device? I'm right. still going to hold out for Apple um, doing that, not just insisting on the two separate devices. And I think that would, that would be the most exciting Apple announcement in years if they would announce at some point that yes, the MacBook Air has a full touch screen, not just the touch bar. But, you know, we haven't seen any, any hints of that happening. Um, the other Apple related thing I would mention is Fortnite. Uh, Fortnite made over $25 million in its first 30 days on iOS. We talked about this quite a bit last night at our digital citizenship conversation. We had a dialogue night with, with uh, for students and parents, and um, we talked about addictions for games and things. But we also, I, I have not played it yet. Uh, one dad described it as a hundred people are on an island. It's the last yep. last man standing, and. Um, you know, I've, I have been to see Ready Player One twice now, uh, which I don't know if you've seen it, but highly recommend that. And, uh, I'm, I think I'm going to have to jump in and, and give it a shot. Uh, that, that's, uh, it's, it's taking the world by storm. The revenues don't compare to Pokemon Go yet, but it, or maybe it's just the, you know, number of users. Um, but are you, Jason, a Fortnite user? I'm sure with dissertation, you've had lots of time to play video games ad nauseum into the, the dark reaches of the night. Right. Yeah. Actually, the whole dissertation was fake. I've just been gaming on Wednesday nights. So, um, I have not gotten into Fortnite, but the, uh, student that's living in our home, we are exchange parents for this year, um, with a, um, a good family friend from Sweden. And man, is that kid into Fortnite? And, um, it's, it's not just him though. I mean, uh, uh, my wife talking to other parents of students, I mean, it's, it's really taken, um, you know, kind of kidnapped by storm. And, um, I have read some interesting articles about how the model keeps getting tweaked and they do other games within the Fortnite model that are more cooperative. And apparently that's, uh, been going very well that, that, that going on teams as opposed to just one versus everyone and that sort of thing. But having seen it and it's, it's a multi-platform game. It's available on pretty much everything that, that, that you could game on except for a Chromebook. Sorry, Chrome users. But, um, the, the, the part that's super interesting to me is that the graphics are good, not great. And it's kind of got a Minecrafty thing to it. You can build stuff to help fight the fight, right? You can build buildings or build towers and within that 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 framework of you going versus um you know the 99 others but it's it's yeah taking the world by storm and it doesn't surprise me that um you know the iphone um ipad crowd would have snapped that that bad boy right up and my understanding is that that um there are there are some costs here and there like for mobile apps but it's otherwise free to play so um it's uh taking the world by storm and it's not costing a a, a uh, a ton of money for kids to get into it. Well, we probably better do Geeks of the Week, but we've got a whole bunch of Are You Paranoid Yet? articles, so you want to give us a couple of those quickly? Sure. Um, BBC reported today that apparently a popular uh, hardware platform for hotel keys has been hacked, and apparently that the, the story is leaked um, now, even though it's been known for quite some time, and um, their, uh, their hotel, a lot of hotels haven't, uh, updated firmware on their locks. And so apparently it's easy for people to get in and out of the unupdated firmware 
um, hotel, electronic hotel key locks without even being detected. So that's something to be paranoid about. Um, there is a nasty new piece of malware that's on, uh, uh, taking on the skin of a flash update. And although I've not seen this in the wild and I, I use an iMac, um, at work, um, the screenshots that are on 9to5mac.com, uh, today's edition of 9to5mac, um, they look pretty legit. Like I, I think I might have clicked on that actually. If I saw, you know, usually there's kind of some telltale signs of, of, of malware. This one looked pretty legit. So, um, Macs aren't usually targeted for a lot of malware, but, uh, user beware, something to keep in mind. And then there's also a very interesting article. Um, uh, actually, it looks like the two of them ended up in our show notes tonight. Uh, the Russian intelligence uh, is hacking uh, Wi-Fi routers, according to The Guardian. And then there's also a CNET article um, related to that. And we've talked about this dozens of times uh, here on the podcast. But in the world where there's so many net-connected devices, of which may or may not be updated in your home... Those become targets for people trying to create what are called botnets, right? They're tiny little computers, you know, like every smart switch, smart bulb, router, or anything that's hooked to to the internet, even if it's not a computer, that it's got a computer inside of it that can be taken over, and then they utilize those to try to hack bigger things. And there's apparently um, a number of uh, dated outdated, not updated routers um, in American homes that are being targeted by Russian hacksaws. All right. Shall we uh, geek of the weekend? Sure. Um, I've got, I've, in the future, I might share a couple of things about my Chrome revelations as I get you know deeper in Chrome world. But um, I did want to highlight something that's happened in the last 24 hours, and it's maybe not for the reason it looks like. Uh, Spotify, which is a commercial music service where you can rent music, right, where you can get access to, I think it's 35 million different songs of which you can download onto a phone or listen to in a limited way without advertising. Well, they have a free version that's been around for quite some time, and it works a little bit, a little bit like Pandora. Um, in that there's advertising available and you don't get a lot of choices and only a limited number of skips. Well, um, uh, Spotify has announced that their free version is going to give more freedom to free users to, um, you know, to to uh, kind of have some choices in what playlists look like. But the reason why it's interesting to me is because most of the commentary today, including, um, I think this is, I pointed to, uh, yeah, the, the Verge article talks about that apparently the AI that's built into the Spotify free model is really outstanding at picking um, you know, uh, music you want to listen to, right? Like they're really working on, you know, uh, taking the data from when people do skip over songs and then utilizing that to better predict for other users. And I have kind of a personal, uh, piece of this. I'm a, I'm a Spotify premium user. Spotify is hooked up to our various, uh, home devices in our home. And obviously, um, our, we don't have it set up yet to where it's going to individual Spotify accounts. So everyone that listens to music in my home impacts my Spotify uh, music uh, prediction choices, oh. right? So in the last six months, for example, some Swedish pop has ended up on my list, of which I am not a Swedish pop uh, listener, but there happens to be someone in my house there is. Uh, my wife has a certain musical bend that has really nothing to do with my music taste, and then I have my own music taste. But 
um, it's good to hear. And apparently the free, the free AI is surpassing the paid AI right now. And so, um, they're starting to become some commentators that say they hope to see some of the really great things that are going into the free app you know, make its way into the paid version of the app. So if you are a Pandora, a free user, or if you are, haven't tried one of the streaming music services, now is a good time to download Spotify free, set up an account. And you give it some information about what you like to listen to and see if it can kind of predict what you're, what you're into. We're doing an Apple Music subscription as a family. If we wanted to move, can we import all of our playlists to Spotify? Do you know any, if that's possible? I'm pretty sure you can. Um, um, that was a, a, a couple of years ago when I moved to Spotify. That was my concern too, is that, you know, the playlists, they just take a while to curate, right? And they're, they're kind of, you know, valuable for not being a, you know, monetarily valuable. And I'm pretty sure there's ways to do that. Yeah. Okay. We may check that out. Well, I have two really quick. First one is called Wordable. Um, I am working on some different book projects and played with this over the weekend. I was really impressed. Um, you end up paying a subscription, but I think I'm going to do it. You can try it free for 24 hours with no <clears throat> restrictions. And, and really what it does is it takes a Google Doc and throws it right into a WordPress um uh, page and wow. takes care of all of the weird wonky formatting that you may be familiar with if you've tried to do that, you know, in between Word and Google Docs and, and other websites like WordPress. And then the other one really quick is Mint, Mintimeter. Uh, had a chance to, to hear part of Kevin Jarrett's makerspace presentation this last week in Washington, D.C. Actually hadn't realized, uh, Kevin Jarrett is completely independent now. He's got his own company called Firewalker Consulting. And so anyway, he's big into makerspace and STEM and STEAM and all that stuff. And <clears throat> similar to Poll Everywhere, Mintimeter, uh, lets you, um, have open text polls or multiple choice. Um, what I really liked, and he had shown this, and I used this on Sunday, I, I got to teach a lesson um, at church. It is really great for the open-ended ones because of the way it can stack up the answers. And so if you've done open-ended polls, like with Poll Everywhere and with words and word clouds, those, those things just don't look that great. Um, but it was really nice how it brought in people's responses and then it scrolled them nicely. And uh, it was fantastic. So give that a shot if you have a chance to. Uh, you can do it online if you wanted to or, um, you know, if you're doing a face-to-face presentation, uh, that's still a pretty cool and fancy thing to let people whip out their phones and give some live input. Of course, you take risks doing that of uh, students and, and stuff. Good chance for a digital citizenship conversation before you perhaps give them a chance to uh, do an open text poll. Maybe you don't do the open text. Maybe you stick with multiple choice, and that's a little bit safer with an audience that you're not exactly sure how they're going to handle their freedom. Okay, there it is. Well, um, this here is the EdTech Situation Room, and although I've been gone for a while, it's good just to be back uh, in the fold and, of course, enjoyed our conversation tonight. We are in a once-a-week podcast where you can uh, jump in and be part of our chat room um, or make comments related to the piece. Um, we sometimes pull people in as guests. Um, but if you don't want to listen to us live, we happen to be available just about everywhere the finer podcasts are aggregated. So whether you are um, in one of the, the podcast apps, including the, the standardized ones, um, or you're, you're talking to your smart speaker, you can ask for EdTech Situation Room and be able to listen to this weekly um, archive. Or if you're interested in to finding the links of, of, of where we're pulling our information from, you can always go to our website, edtechsr.com, and see... Uh, each week's show notes, uh, in addition to our broad list, uh, our now massive size Google 
document, um, you know, which has, you know, our 92 episodes and every link we've referred to since the beginning of this process. Um, I'm Jason Neifer. I'm the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy. You can find me on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach or the Tech Savvy Teacher blog at blog.ncc.org, um, where I try to post inf interesting information. And uh, since I'm going to be done with my now you know, 10 year long project in a couple of weeks, I have a lot of interesting things I'm working on that I hope to start releasing uh, summer and early fall. And what about you, Wes? I'm Wes Fryer, W. Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org on the blog. And I um, actually, and we'll talk about this you know, later, but uh, excited for a Seattle trip and the chance of bringing a making media workshop to the Seattle area in late June. And so if you've got a connection there with a school that might be interested in hosting, then let me know. I need to do some reaching out here in the next week or so to try to get that location finalized. Okay, well, uh, we will see you next week on the Antic Situation Room. Um, uh, stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope to see you in a future edition of the show. Good night. Good night, Good night Peggy. <laughs>